are going to take a look at two different passages today. And uh, in both passages, you're going to be familiar with them. We're just looking at John chapter 2. But there's two stories in here that you know, but you might not know them together yet. You might not have heard them taught uh, in one place. So the first thing we're going to look at is the wedding feast at Cana, where Jesus turns water into wine. You're familiar with this? And the second one we're going to look at is Jesus cleansing the temple. Jesus going in with a whip and knocking over some chairs and making a scene and kicking everyone out of the temple. You know this story, right? Now, you know what they have in common? They're right next to each other here in John chapter 2. And they're right next to each other on purpose. Jesus does the one, and then he goes straight into doing the other one. And we're supposed to understand what God has for us here. It is a little startling for some of us, though, how quickly it goes from a celebration and a wedding feast to violence in the temple. You know, not all of us are used to going quickly from celebration to violence. But for some of you, that's just Thanksgiving with the family. <laughs> some of you. Before everyone finishes hugging at the front door, Aunt Bethany says something crazy, and, uh, and it gets out of hand. You know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> Today we're going to talk about Christ inaugurating his kingdom and all the joy that is there and what it looks like when Christ comes in to make his temple pure. So let's take a look together today. John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Now, it starts off on the third day, and you're supposed to understand this is the third day from what happened just before. And since we're going back and forth between Genesis and John at the moment, uh, you'll have to remember back a few weeks ago, but what happens right before this is the calling of the disciples, is Philip and Nathaniel underneath, or Nathaniel underneath the tree and Jesus calling them. So these guys, Simon Peter and Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, they've been following Jesus for a couple of days now. Uh, when they make it to this wedding feast. This is quite early. But you're also to understand here, as we're reading through Genesis and John at the same time, this reflects in a way the days of creation, the orderly, directed, purposeful way in which God, God moves. So, on the third day, a wedding feast took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. And when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What does this have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification, each containing 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. And then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. And when the head waiter tasted the water, and this is after it become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And he called the groom and told them, everyone who sets out the, everyone sets out the fine wine first, and then after the people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum, together with his mother, brothers, and his disciples. And they stayed there only a few days. All right, so this is the first half of our passage. And hold on a second. I've got to clear my throat. <coughs> I did. 
the way. It's a feast. It's a celebration. And there's no greater celebration than a wedding feast. Of all the parties you've planned in your life, you didn't plan any of them as detailed as you planned that wedding feast that you're a part of. This is a celebration, and this is on purpose why Jesus starts his ministry here, celebrating at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. Now, what happens at the beginning of this passage is Jesus' mother initiates this. She says, hey, they're out of wine. Do something about this. Jesus' response is, you know, woman, it's not yet my time, is what he says. Now, you're not to be slowed down by the way he says woman. This is uh, translated from Greek, uh, a term like madam or miss. It's a term of respect, not the other way. If you and I said it, it'd be woman. Uh, we, we would need to say, you know, madam or miss. And so that's, that's what Jesus is doing here. It's a, it's a term of respect. Uh, just understand that. The focus is on what he says. He says, my hour has not yet come. That is, though Jesus is here, and Jesus knows why he's here and what he's going to do, and Mary knows who Jesus is because she was told by an angel at his birth, before his birth, yet Jesus says, it's not time for everyone else to know. It's not time yet for this public ministry of Christ. And so Christ engages in a private ministry that only some people get to see and know about. He says, it is not my hour yet. And that doesn't change. There will come a time in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, the hour has come. Do you know when that is? When it's time for him to go to the cross. This is his public ministry. He says, okay, now the hour has come. All the ministry work he does from here to there, it is still, though progressively more public, uh, first accepted by the public and then rejected by the public, it's still not the hour yet. When it's time to go to the cross, the real work begins. And he says, now the hour has come. Now the hour has come. God, glorify yourself in me. And then Christ dies on the cross to pay for all of our sins. Not staying dead, he rose again and is an eternal living God. This God of ours who conquered death, not just for himself, but for all of us too who believe in him. He says, my time has not yet come. It's not his time to go public yet. And yet, Jesus still does this miracle. And there are still people who see it, who are there to witness the inauguration, the beginning of something new. That this particular wedding feast wasn't just about that bride and groom, but was used to explain marriage and the celebration that it is and Jesus Christ and what he has come to do in redeeming a people for himself. Don't let the detail be lost on you that the jars they use are for ceremonial purification. These are giant water jars used for washing themselves ceremonially before they go into a temple. Now, they're not in use for this wedding, and that's why they're empty, uh, of course, at this point. But he has them fill up these things that are made, these vessels that are made for the purpose of purification. Because what he's going to offer them when he offers the cup eventually, not here at this wedding, but later on in the upper room to his disciples, the cup that he is offering them is a cup that brings purification, the forgiveness of sins, Jesus Christ himself and his blood. Now, the next thing that you see is the headmaster of the ceremonies, this person who's running the wedding and getting it all going. Uh, receives a goblet, takes a cup of this wine, and says, that's fantastic. 
and celebrates with everybody. You guys have saved the best for last. Everybody else puts the best forward and then it's rubbish. You guys have saved the best for last. And I want you to know today that that's what it's like following Christ. The longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. The longer we go on and trust in Christ, the more we know we can trust Christ. The more you go to him in prayer, the sweeter the prayer times become. In fact, this is the way of all creation. God's whole plan is progressing in a positive direction to where at whatever phase you are in God's plan, you haven't seen anything yet because just wait and see what he's going to do next. He brings Israel out of slavery in Egypt. They are in slavery They are being sent to slaughter every day. Their children killed at the whims of Pharaoh. He brings them out of slavery and makes them a nation. Those who were enslaved are now not just freed, but freed to worship God. And he leads them through the desert to the promised land. That's land that he'd promised them by a pillar of fire at night and by a pillar of clouds during the day. He's with them in the tabernacle. That is a portable temple that they have there with them as they go God doesn't just bring them out of slavery. He resides with them, which is wild. But again, you hadn't seen anything yet. Because then at just the right time, Jesus Christ comes down and takes on flesh. God himself now leads his people, not by a cloud or by a pillar of fire, but he walks around, walks up to them, these disciples, and says, come and follow me. And then they're following God himself in the flesh, But if that's all the story you know, then you hadn't seen anything yet because Jesus himself says now, and as he's resurrected from the grave, he says to his disciples, it's better for you now that I ascend to heaven because when I go, then the Holy Spirit, God himself, will come down on all of you at all times so you never are walking away or far away from God no matter where you go in the world because God will be with all of you at all times. And if you're living today, with the Holy Spirit, God who is present in your life at every moment for those who believe. You still haven't seen anything yet because just wait. Christ has promised that he will return in the same way that he left. And he said on that day when he returns that the dead in Christ will rise from the grave and live eternally. We who remain will have eternal life together with him, with them forever that on that day, death itself will die. There will be a day sometime in the future where there is no more death after that. No more sin. No more temptation left in our hearts. It's always only progressing forward. This is the kind of God we worship. He saves the best for last every time. And it'll be the same in your life too. You may be in a hard season, but just you wait. The the longer we follow after Christ, the more we know we can follow after Christ. The longer we follow after Christ, the more we know that he is going to return and just like he said he would. Another thing that happens here, and this this was neat, I was talking about this passage with Meredith and she's the one who pointed this out, but you know, the disciples see something here that the rest of the people at the wedding ceremony don't, right? The rest of the people at the wedding ceremony think, oh, good wine has arrived. You know, this is, oh, all right, that's cool, wonderful. But the disciples, they're with Jesus, and they see and they believe what's happening. You see, 
if you follow Christ in this life, you're going to start to see things that other people don't see. You're going to start to know what's going on in a way that other people don't know what's going on. Our 24-hour news cycle has whatever to that particular news agency is the most important thing going on in the world blasted at us all day, every day. But most often, it doesn't know what's really important about what's going on in the world. That's just the backdrop for the work that God is doing in his kingdom, expanding in our lives, in our neighbors' lives, further and further and into darker places in the world. We know, as we follow Christ, what's really going on, the real news in the world, and that is that the kingdom is advancing at all times. And it can advance through our words and actions also. And we can allow our lives to be taken over all the more by the kingdom of Christ. This is an inauguration celebration that he does right here. And this is joyful, and it goes along with all the rest of the celebrations that happen when Jesus comes into the world. First, at his birth, the skies tear open when the whole heavenly host of angels singing and celebrating, and these shepherds get to see this announcement that's for even them and for every person of any situation and station. Heaven's rejoicing that now is the time when God would enter into his own creation for the purpose of redeeming us. Next, when Jesus is presented as the temple, at the temple as a child, we have recorded in scripture about an old priest named Simeon and an old prophetess named Anna, and they are well advanced in years. But Simeon got a message from God that he was going to get to see the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, before he died. And sweet young child, Jesus is brought in by his parents. And Simeon says, that's it. You can send your servant on in peace because I got to see with my own eyes the Lord's redemption coming into the temple. When Jesus enters that temple again in Luke chapter 4, as an adult to read from the scroll that day, that day's reading is from Isaiah. And so he takes the Isaiah scroll and he reads where it says, this is the year of the Lord's favor. This is the year for the proclamation of forgiving all debts. And Jesus says, since you heard me read these words today, they are fulfilled today because he himself put those words there. He was God himself. When Christ comes into the world, it is a celebration and worth celebrating. When Christ comes into your life, it is a celebration and worth celebrating. But you also don't need to think that the celebration's over from there on. It was exciting. You know, maybe when you came to trust Christ, it was very exciting. Is it a VBS or is it a summer camp? Or is that a revival? Or even today, if you're hearing the gospel for the first time and believe in it, then God bless you. It is exciting to hear that God is this good. But I tell you, you haven't seen anything yet. Just wait till you followed him for a little while. You come to see the inauguration was just the beginning of the celebration, but rejoicing and following Christ is the life of a believer through all difficulties and all circumstances yet. He is always good, and always we come to discover better and better. This is the word of the Lord for us together today. And then, and then, he goes into the temple and starts turning over tables 
Let's read. I'm going to start in verse 13. Now the Jewish Passover was near. And so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. He found money changers sitting there. And after making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and their oxen. He poured out the money changers' coin and overturned the tables. He told those selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And the disciples remembered it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, what sign will you give us for doing these things? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. And therefore the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed scripture and the statement that Jesus had made. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. This is the word of the Lord. Why are these people at the temple? It might be a little surprising that Jesus, now with his ministry inaugurated and ready to get to work, that the first work he does is making a whip. And yet, this is exactly what's needed. God's presence was meant to be with God's people. The temple, though they built it across all those years, it was a gift from God that God's presence, there should be a place where God's presence would be with them. And people could gather from all over the world. And people did come in from everywhere. Not just Israelites who had been scattered around at this point, who would still make pilgrimages back to worship God in His temple, but people from all over who weren't from the nation of Israel, who still came to make their sacrifices and receive the blessing of the presence of God. These people came from everywhere to worship at this place that was God's gift to them. But one day, it seems, someone came up with a scheme and idea. They, they realized they could make a lot of money because a lot of these people who came were poor and couldn't afford to keep an ox or a sheep alive on the hundreds of miles of journey in. They would come with different kinds of coins. And these people realized we could make money off of these ones who were trying to come and worship God. And they set up shop right there in the middle of the temple court where the worship was supposed to be going on and they were there to get themselves rich and profit off of people who were trying to come and worship God. This is egregious. This is a terrible evil. You understand it rightly. You understand exactly why Jesus made a whip and started turning over tables and kicking them all out. That was not why the temple was there. It was there to be a blessing on everyone who came in it, not to take advantage of those who came in it. Now, this oftentimes gets applied in good, sensitive churches about, you know, not selling books in the lobby or not selling coffee uh, in the lobby. And, and sure enough, we, we don't sell coffee here. We don't have a, we don't have a Starbucks in the lobby. Uh, and even though we are planning our, our larger sanctuary, we are not going to put a Starbucks uh, in the larger sanctuary either. Uh, we will have coffee because that's just a universal good uh, and blessing from God, but free. We'll just, uh, we'll just hand it out. And yet sometimes churches do this, and that's okay. 
you know, sometimes we have resources like our church directories on sale in the lobby for like five bucks to recoup the printing costs of it. Or if I mention a book in my sermon that I really liked a lot and thought you might enjoy, I might grab 10 copies of it and say, you can grab one out in the lobby, put 20 bucks in the bin or however much the book costs. That's not the same thing as what's going on here. What's going on here is people who come here for some other motive other than worshiping God. It would be like a pastor who got into the pulpit because he could make some money. Those people exist. And Christ has a whip for them. I'm just saying, he will drive them out. But likewise, forget about pastors for a second and think about the way people join and participate in congregations. It also happens regularly that people will sometimes, in moving to a new area, join the largest congregation that they can for the sake of their business or connections, to sell insurance or real estate. This is also highly troubling. There will be people who will get connected with the church that has the most connected people in it for political purposes or because they hope to run for office and they want to use this for their influence and for their purposes. That's what the wrong application would be like. Now, we here at Talitha, you know, we're just a little old country church. You know, we're nothing fancy. So that, that temptation is far uh, lesser here. And yet, you'd be amazed. There are people who will join a small little country church on purpose so they can be a big deal someplace in life. They can do it for their own self-esteem or their own desire to be known. Let us all check the motives of our hearts. If you came here today for any other reason than to worship Jesus Christ as Lord and hear from his words so your life can be transformed, then you did it wrong. Let these things be removed from our lives as well. One of my favorite uh, people in history is a guy named Count Zinzendorf. And it's not just because he had a crazy name. Uh, he was a uh, 17th century, he was uh, 1700 to 1767. He was 67 years old when he passed away. Uh, this is before Germany is Germany, though he was German in the area. Uh, he was Moravian. Uh, he had large estates. He was a count after all. But he had become a Christian through a Lutheran pietistic movement, through the Lutheran, the Protestant churches there, uh, these, these pietistic groups who gather together to worship God privately and personally and weren't just going to church on Sunday, but were devoted to worshiping him and reading scripture together during the week as well. He himself was devoted to Jesus Christ. And so he took all of his lands and all of his wealth and he used the land to turn it into a community. He created his own town, Hernhut, this place where people could come from all over Europe who were being persecuted because of their religious beliefs. They could gather there together and worship Jesus Christ in freedom. But none of them stayed there. One by one, they all left to go be missionaries all over the world. This is happening while America is still a colony. America is not even a country yet, and this group, the Moravians, are sending missionaries out to every place they can, every little uh, Caribbean island and Pacific island uh, in which people are being found and discovered by the rest of Europe has a Moravian missionary going there to share the gospel and tell people the good news. The groups today that wear their names include the Hussites, the Hutterites, the Brethren Church, like, you know, at the top of our street here, Grace Brethren Church, or just Grace Church, is a part of that movement of, uh, originally. Well, Zinzendorf said this, he traveled around and started churches himself as well. He went bankrupt uh, using all of his wealth to make sure Christians could come and gather together in peace and worship and then be sent off to be missionaries everywhere. 
His philosophy was this. He said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's the good life to Zinzendorf. Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. Because, you know, for those of us who are in Christ, it is enough for us to know Christ and be known by him. If we could only know this God and if he would know us, then that will be enough for us. Because to know God and be known by him is an eternal reality. We're still talking about Zinsdorf. He wasn't very successful uh, at his, uh, his goal to not be known, but that's all right. Let's also, us, check our motives. Our interest in Christ is not about financial gain or about peace or to try and impress someone else or advance ourselves, but just about the joy of worshiping Jesus Christ and telling other people about him. Now, while this is going on in the temple and everybody's doing wrong, uh, money changing, what's Jesus' answer? Well, God himself comes down and takes on flesh, makes a whip, and starts kicking over tables and scattering animals and coins and kicking them all out and cleaning house. And there's a connection here back to the days of creation as well. And that's why we're learning Genesis as we do John. As Jesus creates things, when those things do what he created them to do, he says it is good. And when they don't, it is not good. This temple is created for worshiping God, and they've turned it in a way, into a way to rob people. And he comes in and says, it is not good. This is what evil is. The disobedience of God, or to take something that was made for good and turn it into a means of abuse. And God is serious about judgment. This God who comes to inaugurate the celebration in his kingdom of forgiveness is a God who is serious about judgment and serious about sin. Both Christ coming and dying on the cross to pay for our sins and the judgment that Christ brings here represent the fact that either way, he's serious about sins. They were never just going to be brushed off. He came to die on the cross because he's serious about sin. He's all the more serious about our salvation Amen. and us getting to rejoice and trust in him. Is Jesus a hothead here? No. People are being taken advantage of when they're supposed to be receiving a blessing. He is right to do this. You need to understand that we all need this sort of work in our lives as well. When Jesus comes in your life for the first time, it's a celebration. But you know, Jesus, when he comes into your life for the first time, we also need him to come in and clean house in our own lives. Man, you think the evil that was going on in that temple court was bad. Look into your own heart and see the depth of the evil that's in a man and a person. We need Jesus to come into our life and start turning over tables in our hearts and kicking things out that need to go because of the depth of the sin that is in our life. Christ doesn't come at you today with a whip thought about having one here with me today as a good sermon illustration to kind of pop it at you. Uh, you know, I also thought it might be a good sermon illustration to put a, a folding table down front here so I can go flip it over. But uh, you'll just have to do that on your own at your own homes today is go flip a table over just to remember uh, how serious Jesus is about sin. Use that to teach your children. <laughs> God has given us, though he doesn't bring us a whip, he's given us three things to help clean out our lives of sin. The first thing that he gives us is scripture. 
which though not a whip, it talks about itself as being a sharp sword, a scalpel that cuts out the infected parts in our lives. Let's try it real quick. I'm going to read a passage of scripture to you now, and uh, you just tell me if this doesn't come at you for the purpose of cleaning out your life, your heart, your temple. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. This means one must not transgress and take advantage of a brother or a sister in this manner because the Lord is the avenger of all those who are offended. Scripture is this whip that comes into our life. It is Christ himself, the word of God, coming into our life to clean out the evil that's in our heart. He's given us scripture. And what's more, just as Jesus Christ entered the temple courts that day, he has given us his Holy Spirit, and now God enters into our life directly, just in the same manner, for just the same purpose, about cleaning out what needs to be cleaned out in our life. When you put your trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes on you that day for the purpose of convicting sin, convicting us of our sins, and helping us to remove them. We have Scripture. We have the Spirit. And what's more, the third thing, we have each other. The temple of God is not just you. The temple of God is us. As God is building us together, as God is putting us together, to be a part of a church is to be a part of this covenant community where the Spirit resides together on all of us and where we have to be serious about removing sin from the congregation. So we're talking on Wednesday at our prayer meeting about, uh, someone was mentioning, you know, how it's sad sometimes that you don't hear about uh, people, good Christians, kind of uh, correcting each other you know, kindly but firmly correcting each other. And I got to say to this person, good news, it goes on all the time here at Talatha. But a part of the good news of it is that you don't hear about it because so much of it happens when one brother or sister goes to another and says, hey, let, let's not do it that way. Hey, what, what you said, it was hurtful. Let's correct that. Hey, you need, to, you need to not, there's no way that you can get to a good life by living sin, sin now. We've got to be corrected now. It happens all the time here. It's happened several times to me when a good brother or sister in Christ has come to me over the last few years and said, hey, Jordan, you shouldn't be so cavalier about some of these important spiritual matters. Or, hey, Jordan, what you said, I know you didn't mean it, but it came out wrong and it came out hurtful. And I've appreciated it to no end. You know, when we need cleaning out of our lives, we have Scripture, we have the Spirit, and we have each other for this purpose. Let us use them all to remove sin. Finally, it says, zeal for my house will consume him. They remember this Old Testament passage, this prophecy about zeal for the Lord. What does the word zeal mean? It means passion, right? What are you passionate about? What's a person passionate about? You ever heard of somebody who's been working on this passion project, this thing that drives them for decades and decades of their lives? Woe to the person who gets between a man and the thing that he has been working on for decades, the, the passion project of his life. Woe to the person who gets between a mother cub and her bear, you know, her baby bear. 
Likewise, do you understand what God is passionate about? It's the purification of his people and kingdom. What he's passionate about is starting this kingdom that everyone is invited to come into and everyone should come into and that it is purified of sin and not there to hurt other people, but there all the more to welcome other people into it. This is what God is passionate about. So woe to the person who plans to do evil against a congregation of God. Do you not know that this same God will judge those and bring his wrath and judgment against those who seek to attack his churches? Attack doesn't just come from the outside, but from the inside. Woe to the person who seeks to bring division, cause angst or trouble or hurt people within as well. Don't get between God and what he's passionate about. That is creating communities of people now who will someday be joined together into his kingdom fully and completely and purely. You understand there is a right place for violence in Christianity. There's a right place for this kind of militancy, this zealous anger that goes and gets things straight. But we as Christians have gotten this wrong all the time. There are plenty of Christians who get angry and they have all their angry words and all their militancy. They get their whip out, but it's against the world. The world's always been evil. And it's always going to be. They get their whip out. They get militant against the culture. They take all their zeal and get passionate against politicians and political parties. The movement of fundamentalism that happened in the early 20th century, uh, these Christians who got angry at the culture, angry at, and wanted to create their own counterculture and get control for their lives, this was misplaced. Zeal. Do you know the right place for zeal, for passion, for militancy? It's against sin in our own lives. There's a place for us to get hot. There's a place for us to get violent, and it's against the passions of our heart and the sin that seeks to en entangle us. There's a place for it, and it is to get rid of sin out of the congregation. That's where Christ's passion is, and that's where our militancy goes as well, is the purification of our lives and our congregation. Scripture says he would not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in them. Let me tell you, the hearts of people is worse than the temple courts. I don't think you need a witness on this because I think you probably know this if you're honest with yourself about your own hearts. And yet, Christ will come into our lives as well. He came into the world to inaugurate a celebration for all of us. You understand that even in the middle of that ceremony that he's doing there, when all this wonderful wine is being poured out for everyone... Christ already has in view the hour that had not yet come but would come. While he is serving them the cup of joy, he knows that he is going to take the cup of the wrath of God himself. See, Christ drank the wrath of God for us. He consumed all of it so that there's no more wrath in God for us. There is only grace in God for us. He took the bitter cup so we could take the sweet cup. He took the cup of wrath so that we could have the cup of grace. There is no wrath left in God for you if you are in Christ Jesus. 
There is only the cup of grace. And I tell you, the cup of grace overflows out of a cup, out of a vat, all over our lives. You're not going to reach the end of it. God is gracious and gracious and gracious. What do you need to do today? Rejoice that He has taken the cup of wrath so that we could receive the cup of grace. Let us also today start cleaning house in our own lives. To follow Christ is to make a decision to clean house. Let us repent is the word. There will be in your heart until Christ returns temptation that comes up. This is the nature of sin. This entropy, this way in which we're always steered back towards sin over and over again, and we have to daily clean out the temple of our lives, our hearts, our minds in order to be rightly pleasing to God. It is a daily action. Scripture says that we must renew our minds daily by the reading of Scripture so that we can know what is good and pleasing to God. Of course, these old temptations will come back again and again, and we must clean them again and again. If you don't know what it's like to have to clean house every day, just bring some children into your house. And uh, it's like that. How did this? I just cleaned this. It didn't take an hour for it to get a mess again. I just cleaned this. How are there never clean forks? I don't want to get too specific here. But... uh, But this is what it's like with sin and temptation in our lives. Man, I just resisted temptation yesterday. Why again today? Let us live lives of repentance. Sin will always try to creep back in. We must live by the Spirit every day and renew ourselves daily. Let us rejoice that He's taken the cup of wrath and given us the grace. And let us repent and clean house today. If you're going to believe in Christ, then you need to take up the whip yourself and start cleaning house. But know that you're not alone. God is with you in this endeavor. And finally, let us recognize that we can't have one without the other. If you need to be in Christ today, if you're not sure that your sins are forgiven, you can today. It's as simple as this. Christ is given throughout Scripture two commands. Repent and believe. That's it. Do you want to be in Christ today? Then come and be in Christ. It is as simple as this. I am done with that life. I believe that you love me as much as you say you do and have forgiven my sins. To everybody who repents and believes, we have the Holy Spirit, the grace of God. We are in Christ in a way where we will never, he will never let go of us. So come and join the celebration. Come and be in Christ, but there's no grace without discipleship. So come and offer your life to him as a disciple. Come, join the celebration, repent, believe, and dedicate your life to acts of righteousness and joy from this day forward. Because to be in Christ is a celebration. And you haven't seen anything yet for what he is yet to do. Let's pray. Father God. I thank you that you are so gracious to us. I thank you that you have only good things planned for us. I thank you that it was your good pleasure to take upon yourself the punishment we deserve. I thank you that it is rightly a celebration to be in Christ. 
Holy Spirit, open our eyes to where we need to clean out our lives today. Show us and point to us where there is still sin in our lives that we're nurturing rather than kicking out. And then give us the strength to turn away from all of it. Give us peace. Give us joy. And receive this song, this time, and our lives as worship. This I pray in your name. Amen.